Welcome to Light Church. We're so glad you could join us for this weekly message. We hope this message leaves you feeling inspired and equipped to be all that you were made to be. And uh, I'm also enjoying these kind of colder days. I know I've said this before, but I'm really enjoying like the sunrises in the morning. I'm enjoying things being a little bit colder and a little bit darker in the evenings. I don't know, it's just maybe my personality, but um, I guess it's one of those things. Uh, I feel like the, the more, I don't know when it happened, but the, the further, the older I get, the more I, I journey through life, the more I realize like, ah, I think I've actually become an adult. I don't know when it happened. I'm not too sure exactly the process of how that happened, but it happened. And this is how I found out the other day. I was stood I stood at my back window and I was looking out of the back window, looking at the grass that we have in our garden. And I was thinking, I hope I can get one more mow of the lawn in before, before the cold weather. <laughs> I can promise you my entire life, I have never thought that ever before, ever. I've never once looked at grass and thought, oh, I hope I can get one more mow of the lawn in. I don't know what happened to me. I don't know when it happened, but it happened. I think I need to mow my lawn. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know what to say, but it happened. And uh, it is funny, isn't it? This idea of like, you know, the older you get and you, this thing called adulting, or maybe you're younger this morning, you're thinking, I don't know what that is yet. Well, it's coming. It is coming. And something that I figured out about life, and maybe you, you've experienced this same epiphany as well, is that in life, we tend to experience a lot of conflict. Would that be a fair thing to say? Is we experience a lot of conflict, even to the point of like, our ability to manage and navigate through conflict has a big bearing on our life. Because so much of life is about conflict. I found this the older I've gotten. Conflict can be on so many different levels. Conflict can be on like a really serious level. It might be, you know, some, some big family thing that where people fall out. It could be on like a really insignificant level. But conflict is a big part of the human experience. We all experience conflict on a daily basis. And uh, I, it was funny, I often think when looking, looking around this idea of conflict, me and Holly were talking the other day and some, some couples can be really good when it comes to like arguing or bickering, it's not really a part of their relationship. Me and Holly, we're both very strong characters. So the way a conversation with me and Holly would go is, one of us will like to say what's on our mind or what we believe to be right. And in response to that, the other one would like to say what's on their mind and explain to be right as well. That's just the way it goes for us. And uh, so we have lots of passionate conversations uh, about what is right and what is wrong until we get to the conclusion that we aren't even bothered about what's right or wrong. We just enjoyed the, the, verbal, the verbal back and forth of it all. I don't know, maybe that we have a problem. I don't know, who knows? <laughs> But it was funny because conflict is interesting because you can look across your life and you can acknowledge or you can recognize this is an area of life where I experience conflict or this is a situation in this relationship that always causes conflict. That's a person I always seem to be in conflict with. Like I said, it happens on levels. Me and Holly, we uh, both like to watch films. Like we both enjoy watching films. And it's one of those things, if I was to look in our marriage, like just being vulnerable here with you, at one of our conflict points, I know Holly hates it when I preach because she's like, why are you telling everyone this? Now, one of the things, one of the things of our, like our little conflict points are, I really, really love films. Like it's like something I do. I really enjoy watching films. 
And Holly really enjoys watching films too. And the thing is, in, when we spend time together, I see watching a film as being like, this is our time, we're doing it together, we choose the film, go through that whole three hour process of finding the film to watch an hour and a half film, you know how it goes. And um, there's too much choice. And, and then we, we, we sit there and what will often happen is Holly will drift off to sleep in the film and I'll be left watching the film. Now, this is crazy because to Holly, this is a really big positive, it's a compliment. No, no, I feel really peaceful and I feel really comfortable. That I'm like, I'm really enjoying this. This is really nice. And I'm like, you're abandoning me. I'm sat here watching some like girly film on my own. Like if I knew I was going to watch it on my own, I would have just picked a film I wanted to watch and you could nap beside me. That's fine. But it's just like one of these things. And it hit me the other day when we were talking. Holly said, oh, these, these cold days. Does it not just make you want to get on the sofa, fall asleep and watch a film? And I was like, there's the problem. There is the problem. Those two things shouldn't go together, but they're together in Holly's head. And these, these little things, now that's not a serious conflict, it's just something that's funny. But conflict is a really big part of the human experience. We all will go through times in relationships where we are like in a conflict with people. The thing is about conflict is this. Conflict in itself is not a bad thing. Okay, conflict in itself is not a bad thing, but it's actually the choices that we make and our approach to conflict that can have drastic impacts on our life. So conflict itself is kind of neutral. You can have good conflict. Conflict is a really necessary part of relationship, but our choices that are made, the way we approach it, our values when it comes to conflict can have drastic impacts on the way that we live our life. So really, when you think about this idea of conflict, as Christians, as people, we need to learn how to approach conflict in a Jesus-like way. If it's such a big part of life, we need to learn how to approach it in a Jesus-like way so that we can navigate through our lives in a much better way. See, the thing is about conflict, there's some common responses to conflict, and maybe you'll hear yourself in one of these. Sometimes when conflict arises, people will fear, well, will feel like a fear of conflict. Like, oh, I really, I don't like bringing that up. I, I don't like having that conversation. I, I'd rather not rock the boat. Maybe that's you. Or the, there's often people that really just avoid conflict. It's not that they're scared of it. They just can't be bothered with conflict. Easy going, peaceful life. I'm just going to avoid the conflict. Maybe people are popping into your mind. These are common responses to conflict. Some people have a love of conflict. You met people like that that just have like a desire for conflict and have like a, they enjoy, I mean, I think I'm possibly one of those people and maybe that's a bad thing, but like, I don't mind having like back and forth conversations. And some people really enjoy those, those conversations of conflict. And sometimes that can be a negative thing. And then there can be people who are completely unaware that they're in conflict. I've seen people like this where you say, you know that conversation we had the other day, that little bit of a scuffle, little argument. No? What? I was just chatting. What? You know what I mean? Some people are just really unaware of conflict. And that's, that's the thing. But I believe that we need to talk about conflict. We need to learn how to approach it in a Jesus-like way. And this is why. Is I've seen far too many pastors leave churches. I've seen far too many churches split from one another. I've seen far too many people leave churches. Far too many people's faith 
get burnt. I've seen far too many family relationships torn apart. Far too many marriages pulled apart. Simply because we had an unhealthy view of what good conflict looked like. So we need to talk about conflict because I actually really believe that the Bible speaks so much into unity. Let's look at this. In the Bible, when it talks about unity, the command of unity is often paired with a response from God. And when this happens in the Bible, you can look time and time again. You can look in the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Peter. You can look in James, Philippians. You can look in the Psalms and the Proverbs. When it talks about unity, there is often paired with a response from God. And the responses are this. Where there's unity, there is God's blessing. Where there is unity, there is God's joy. Where there is unity, there is God's peace. There is God's power. God restores people. There is God's presence. So there's something to be said about this idea of unity and mishandled conflict or unresolved conflict can often be the root of so much division in marriages, in faith, in churches, in friendship groups, in families. But we don't often like talking about conflict because it seems like a really negative thing. Like, oh, we're going to talk about arguing? No, we're not going to go into that. We're not going to go into every little element of how to win an argument, how to argue well. I encourage you to read up on that stuff because it is important. But we have to understand how it is that we approach conflict. So, like I said, we're journeying through the book of Acts. And um, we're in Acts chapter 6. And as we've seen already in the journey of the early church, as we watch the early church develop and grow in its early stages, its fragile stages, we see that it has had its fair share of conflict. It has had conflict from like exterior, as in like the, the religious authorities were in direct conflict with the church. There were so many times that the early church in these first six books have come into a place where they've been in conflict with either someone else or one another. So uh, this Acts chapter six is this amazing passage. You could call it like the, the structuring of the early church. It's kind of like the formalizing of the governance of the early church. And uh, we get to watch how the early church deal with things. And we live in a different context. Like I said, this Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us, which means we get to look at this and we don't copy exactly the context of things. We learn the context and understand, well, how can we apply this in our day today? So that's what we're gonna do. So a little bit of context behind Acts chapter six. Acts chapter five, we learned that this early church was learning to stand on its convictions was learning to be obedient, follow God, and stand on the truth. And the church was growing really quickly. It says thousands were being added to the church. It was this like big snowballing movement. And they're experiencing resistance, so they begin to formalize things. They begin to put governance and strategy and structure into place, which happens when an organization gets so big that things start to go wrong a little bit, and there is conflict And we get to see how they deal with it. So this morning, I want to offer some spiritual and practical principles from the early church to help us better approach conflict and protect unity. Sound good? Sound good? And just a side note, I am not going to make Acts chapter 6 say something that it does not say. Okay? We are faithful to what this book says. So I'm not going to go, here's what what Acts chapter 6 says. Here are my ideas about unity and about conflict. We are going to look at what the early church did And we're going to go, what is it that God was doing? Why did this fragile movement 2,000 years ago last? 
And why are we still part of that same movement today? How did it outlast the centuries? So I've got some observations from Acts chapter 6 of points of conflict or opportunities where conflict could have arisen. And then we'll look at how they actually approached it. And uh, remember, just a note, it is not necessarily what they did, but how they went about it, the values that they had. So the first point of conflict or, or opportunity for conflict in the early church was this unintentional hurt. Unintentional hurt. So at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, we see that the early church begins to get so big. All these people are being added in numbers. People are getting saved. It's snowballing. It's crazy. All this growth and movement. It's exciting. Miracles are being done. And then it says that the the group of Jews that were Greek-speaking, so the ones that were from the wider area who didn't live, they weren't native to Jerusalem or Judea, they begin to complain to the Hebraic Jews who were the ones who were native to Jerusalem and they begin to say, look, we are being left out of the distribution of food for our widows. Little side note here. Basically what happened in, in Jewish custom is that when a woman was married to a man and the man passed away, the widow was then, the, the church was responsible, the, the temple was responsible for giving food out to the widows. So it was part of their custom. And uh, the Greek-speaking Jews were like, hey, we're being overlooked here there's a problem. They begin to speak up about it. And the apostles gather together. They call a big meeting and they say, right, we're going to deal with this. And they start putting structures in place. See, it says in the passage here, it does not imply at all that this was intentional. It does not imply that the, the, the Hellenistic Jews were being left out on purpose for any reason. It simply implies that because things were so big, Because things were growing so fast, they did not have the systems in place to be able to distribute the food and people were missing out. This unintentional hurt. I wonder if you ever in your life experienced unintentional hurt. Because I know I have when someone just says something and it just touches a nerve. Oh, I didn't feel so good. Or when someone does something and it cuts right across you and you think, I didn't really like that. Or... Oh, when someone does something to you and you go away feeling a little bit put out, like, ah, I've definitely been in that spot. And especially when you bring up with the person, like, oh, sorry, I had no idea. So let's look at the early church with this unintentional hurt. This is exactly where they are. The passage implies that it was just a system error. It was a problem. They hadn't got the stuff in place. And this is what they do. The Greek-speaking Jews, they spoke up. And they said, look, we're experiencing this problem. There's something going on. Then in response to that, the Hebrew Jews listen. They listen to what's been said. And then the apostles move forward. They respond in unity. Check this out. when, When the problem first arose, how many of us would have assumed would have assumed what was going on. Okay, you know what? Just because we don't live in Jerusalem, just because we're not like those other people, they get to leave our widows out. And then this little root of bitterness begins to grow and it divides the church. And this movement that was growing and and multiplying and God was, was breathing into and moving begins to splinter apart because of this assumption. I don't know about you, but assumptions can be really, really deadly. Assumptions can be really, really deadly because assumptions are like truth to us, but we have no idea what's actually going on. But we love 
to take assumptions about unintentional hurt and allow it to divide us, to divide marriages, to divide faith, to divide churches, to divide pastors from congregations, from, to, to divide friends. It is like a poison within humanity to assume that the person was out to get us, regardless of what the reality actually is. What was interesting is that Hellenistic Jews, they did not do that. They raised their concern. If you have been the subject of hurt, however big or small, I want to encourage you, you have a responsibility to say something. I, I want to encourage you if, you are, if someone has hurt you in your life, I really want to encourage you to say something. Especially when it comes to relationship. If you value unity, if you value the relationship and you want this relationship to move forward, you have a responsibility to say something. To say, hey, I know, I don't know what the, the truth of this is. I don't know if you meant to or not, but this is, this is how that made me feel. Now, this isn't like a practical step. I can't tell you what the, the Jews did. I can't tell you the exact story because we don't know. But what we know is they raised their concern. And if we value unity, what seems like them complaining was them actually protecting their unity. So in some relationships that you are in, you might think, actually, if I say something, it's going to make it awkward. If I say something, then it's actually going to be a problem. If you don't say something, you allow this little division to take root and what ultimately could turn into a relationship ripped apart. So the Hellenistic Jews, they said something. But listen to this. You have a responsibility to say something, but the person that hurt you has a responsibility to listen. We have a responsibility to listen to one another, especially as a church, especially as friends, especially in marriages. We have a responsibility to listen. How often when someone brings something to us, we want to just, just straight away jump. I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it like that. I didn't say it like that. No, that's not my intention. And really, we could all just do with listening, understanding. Because this is the thing about relationship, isn't it? It's two-way. So the Jews that spoke up had to trust that the ones who heard them were going to listen. And the thing is, as they begin to move forward, what did it do? It built unity. And then let's look at the apostles. What did the apostles do? They moved forward in unity. It said that they got a consensus. Everyone agreed about the way forward. They understood this is what we're going to do as a family. Listen to this. When unity is the goal and when love is the method, everyone wins. Think about that in relationship. If unity is the goal and if love is the method, everyone wins. I'm not saying everyone will agree. I'm not saying everyone will move forward together in that sense. Because we all know relationships can be dead complicated. But when love is the method, we all win. Yeah. I really love how the early church dealt with this problem. It was like there was an openness for feedback, an openness for conflict. In James chapter 119, it says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note on this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This passage just speaks of just being open and humble to bear with one another in relationship. And how did the early church, this fragile movement, that is still going today, how did it last? Well, they were able to have this conflict with one another. Can I encourage you, don't let unintentional hurt be the root of division. I want to encourage you to speak up, to listen up, to respond, to act 
Because we all get better when we all get better, right? Sounds simple. We all get better when we all get better. But if I come to you and say, look, this, this really hurt me, that could be the thing you needed to hear to change some real bad behavior in your life that you never knew about. Can we love each other enough to tell each other the truth? Just a challenge. So they faced this conflict of unintentional hurt. The second thing is this. They faced a conflict of calling. A conflict of calling. So we see that the the 12 disciples, when they hear that this injustice had happened, what happens is they say to the people, look, it would not be right for us. Let me read it out. It says, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, see the disciples, the 12, there was this expectation on them that they needed to do everything. Because when an organization's small, they were doing a lot. And as it grows and there's thousands of people involved, there was still this expectation that the disciples needed to do everything. I wonder if you've ever felt the weight of other people's expectations on your life. You ever felt like you needed to live up to other people's expectations or live up to the way that other people think you should be doing something. I know I've been there. should should, Should I be a little bit more mature in that area should i what are they wanting from me maybe it's just me if we're being honest today i don't know we feel the weight of other people's expectations the disciples will be in that exact same spot but you know what i love about them is the disciples say look that is not what god has called us to that is not what god has given us to do our central calling is the ministry of the word of god and to prayer And I love this because they stand there and they they don't bow. They don't swerve to other people's expectations. They're not crippled under the weight of other people's expectations. They're strong in the fact that they know what God has called them to. This is interesting to me because when I read this, I thought, wow, the disciples are a little bit sassy. Like, you think we're going to give up doing the ministry of God to wait on your tables? You can imagine everyone being like, whoa, all right. Is it too beneath you to do the tables? But the thing is, this is the thing. There wasn't this air around the disciples to be like, we're not, we're not waiting your tables. We are, we are ministers of God. That was not the heart. It was them saying, look, that's not what God's given us to do. But instead, what do they say? God has given this to someone else. What do the disciples do? It says, we will turn this responsibility over. They were able to release and empower people to do what God had called them to do. Let's talk about conflict in this area for a second. How many people do we see in life looking at what God has given other people, wishing they had what they had, wishing they had this gift, wishing they could do this, wishing they could sing like that, wishing that God would bless them in that way or treat them in that way or whatever it might be. And it begins to cause division because we're constantly looking at what other people have rather than what God has given us. I see so many people that are torn apart because they were unaware of what God had put on their life and they were convinced it was something else. I've seen far too many people stay in positions for far too long because they were unaware of what God had put on their life and they were trying to live someone else's. I've seen so many people act in a certain way in a marriage thinking that they were one way when they didn't realize what God had given them to do. See, part of this idea of conflict of calling is that God has given every single one of us something to do. 
He has given every single one of us a future and a purpose. And until we understand what God has given us, we are always at risk of clashing with other people because we're trying to get what they've got. Because we think we need to be what they are. We need, to, we need to preach in that way or lead in that way or parent in that way or whatever it might be. But I want to encourage you, God has put something within you. Yeah. And don't sacrifice that and butt heads with people around you because you're so busy looking at them. I say this so often, spend more time with the maker and you'll know why it is you've been made. It is as simple as that. And these disciples were able to walk through this potential area of conflict. Because you imagine the early church, they could have been like, oh, so you, 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 you guys are too big now to, to do these tables. But instead, well, it says they move forward with unity. The disciples did something right here. What did they do? They understood what God had placed on them. And they said, we will not do anything other than what God has called us to do. And neither should you. If I was to ask you this morning, how long have you been living in someone else's calling and neglecting what God has placed on you? Maybe today is that little moment to say, I need to go back to what God has asked me to do. Whatever that might be. Romans 12, 4 to 5 says this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to the others. And this is what I love about the early church. So the early church, the disciples are like, this is what God's called us to do. And then they say, let's appoint some people who are better at this. A side note here, when the Bible talks about when the disciples say, we're not waiting on tables, like we need to find some people to do this. This is not as we would read this and understand like a waiter, you know, coming to a table to serve food. A table in those times actually meant a place where money was sorted. It was a place where administration was done. So what the disciples are saying is, let's, let's find some people that are full of the spirit of God, that are full of wisdom to govern the church, to run the details, to be the ad administrators of the church, to distribute money, distribute food, distribute possessions. And then they, they empowered them to do it. And this shows us something special because then what they do is they laid hands on these seven guys. They prayed for them and then they sent them. You know what this tells us is so often in our culture, we over-spiritualize certain roles within the church and within life, don't we? We think, oh, I've got to be a worship leader because that's what spirituality looks like. That's what service to God looks like. I've got to be a preacher. I've got to be a pastor. I've got to be in ministry. But the disciples laid hands on seven guys who were going to be administering money and provisions because it was the calling that was on their life. If God has called you to something, that is your spiritual duty to carry out. Not what I do, or not what Joel or Becca or Grace or Mike or Josh or any of these people up here do. If God has not called you to it, your spiritual duty is something else. But we love to look up at the front and think, that's what serving God looks like. That's what it means. I've got to be full-time ministry. I've got to do this. If God has placed you in a school, if God's placed you in a law firm, or if God's placed you uh, as a, a bin man, whatever it might be, if God has placed you there, there is purpose. And I believe he wants to work through it. So let's stop looking at one another thinking, if only I could take on that call, and if only I could be like that, because you're missing what God wants for you. Yeah. Listen to this. Unity is most achievable when we all play the part that God has for us. When we understand why it is we stand in the rooms we stand in, 
we can actually be used by God in some crazy ways that so often we don't let him move. Just a thought. So the early church, they had this unintentional hurt that they dealt with. They faced this conflict of callings. And then the final one is this, an intentional attack or an intentional hurt. How many of us have experienced intentional attacks or intentional hurts? I know I have. Where it's like someone's goal in life is to trip me up. Or someone's goal in life is to be that person and say those things. We've all met them. Maybe we all have one in our life where we just know ah, that person needs to leave me alone. No? Just me? So what happens is then, one of the seven guys that's called to, to, to be one of like the, 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 the governors or the deacons, they'd call them. He was called Stephen. And it says that he was full of God's grace and God's power and God's spirit and God's wisdom. And he begins to like do these amazing miracles. Which I love this as well, because he was called to uh, be like an administrator. Yet the next verse talks about him doing signs and wonders and powers. Let me just say, your job or occupation does not discount you from God being able to use you. Okay, like no matter what you do, God can still work through you in crazy ways. You don't just have to be in a certain job or whatever for God to use you. Just a side note. So Stephen, he begins to do these crazy wonders. And then the same high priests that we've learned about in the last three chapters hear about Stephen and they are done. You could say like the good old days of the church were done. Like the, the high priests, the authorities, they just did not like this rebel group of Christians. Thousands of them seeing miracles, people, people being like raised from the dead, people's sight coming back, these amazing miracles. The authorities were done. We, we just want plain old Judaism back now. We're done with all this, this crazy life and stuff. We're done. So they seize Stephen. They take him and they falsely accuse him. They get some guys to basically say, this is what we heard Stephen say. This is what he said about Moses. This is what he said about God. And this is what he said about the temple. And they begin to form this big story to essentially trip Stephen up. And to ultimately, they want to put him to death. But this is what the Bible says about Stephen. In verse 3, when they were choosing the seven, it says, find men that are full of spirit and wisdom. In verse 8, it specifically says about Stephen that he was full of God's grace and God's power. And then in verse 10, it says this. This is talking about the high priest who questioned him. It says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the spirit gave him as he spoke. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to people that are out to intentionally trip you up, how often do we rely on our own wit, on our own ability to argue, on our own ability to defend ourselves, rather than going, God, can you give me wisdom as to what to say? Let, let me encourage you this. Do not allow somebody else's evil to justify evil in your own life. Yeah, but I don't do that. I'd never do anything bad. Do not allow someone else gossiping about you to allow you to gossip about them. Do not allow other people's evil and dysfunction to justify evil and dysfunction in your own life. Because we do it, don't we? If we're all being honest, we do it. When someone does something to us and we know, okay, this person is not up for reconciling. It's like we switch and we think, all right, fine. I got this. I can do whatever I want. This is not the way that the early church dealt with this. Rely on the Holy Spirit to actually give you the words 
and to show you what it is you need to see in these moments of intentional attack and hurt. Matthew 5, 16 says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Look, in relationships where someone is out to trip you up, if unity is not a possibility, if unity is not on the cards, if you don't think that that person is up for this relationship, then leave that person with a pathway to God. Right? If someone is not up for unity, then leave them with just a pathway to God, not a reason for them never to look at God. Our lives should be so upright in the face of people that do not like us or do not want us around. Our, our lives should be so upright that it speaks about something bigger. Our lives should be the very thing that calls people to question their own motives and intentions. Yeah. And we look at Stephen stood in front of this entire group of people, in front of a hundred or so of them, and it says they could not say anything against his wisdom that the Spirit gave him. In your life, the best thing you can do in the face of someone trying to trip you up is to stay pure, to stay upright, and allow the Spirit to move through you. Yeah. Not to sink and use their evil against them. Because no one wins. Whereas if we go, I'm going to leave this person with some arrow to God that after they've dealt with me, that it can cause them to think about something... You will win, and maybe, just maybe, they will win as well. But so often we're out to just be right and to move through. Yeah, I owned that person. Yeah, did you hear what I said? That, that, that little clap back was so genius. Or have you, leave, have you ever left an argument and been like, I should have said that. I've done it so many times. I could have said this. I was so good. Now, why was I so weak in that conversation? I'm going to get the band up. I'm coming in to close here. If unity isn't a possibility, leave people with a pathway to God. Let your uprightness be the thing that causes them to question their motives or intentions. So the early church, they dealt with this unintentional hurt. And they, they spoke up. They listened. They acted. And they moved forward with unity. They didn't assume. The early church, they dealt with this conflict of calling. And they stayed true to what God had asked them to do. They stayed true to the calling on their life. And they dealt with intentional attack. And the way they did it was just by being upright and fixing their eyes on Jesus. So as I come into close here, I really find this passage, I find it fascinating watching this. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like I need to do conflict better. If, if divisiveness and this division in life can really be the end of so many people's relationships and, and churches and stuff and whatever, then we can't just be so okay with us avoiding conflict or being afraid of conflict. Or... In verse 15, when Stephen is stood, it's the very last verse of Acts chapter 6, and Stephen stood there in front of the, the Sanhedrin, and he's, he's given his response, and he, he wasn't super compliant with them. He didn't roll over for them. He just did what he felt God asked him to do. And it says this, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. It's like he's under the microscope. It's like they're just watching him in front of them. All eyes are on him. And it says this, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now we see this one other time in the Bible 
where someone sees God and it says their face was glowing. And it was this idea of like the presence of God. And, but in this passage, this idea of this face was like the face of an angel. is more to be interpreted like this. The Sanhedrin looked at this guy who should have been crippled and on his knees in fear. And they saw the presence of perfect peace. They, they look at this guy who should be terrified at these questions and accusations and the fear of death. But he was fully confident, fully secure, and he was unshakable. See, this is, this is part of the story of our faith. Whatever, you, whatever your relationship with conflict is like, whatever your journey with conflict is like, maybe you hate it, maybe you've had some horrible, manipulative, divisive experiences, whatever it is, this guy Stephen has stood nearly at the end of his life. And this whole group of people look at him and see the presence of perfect peace. It's like nothing they could throw at him could shake him. Nothing they could say could shake him. The presence of perfect peace. Now, I don't know about you whether it's un unintentional hurt, whether you're figuring out what it is God has asked you to do, or maybe you're coming under some real fire. Whatever it is, we have the opportunity to have the presence of perfect peace in our life. An unshakable peace. A stable peace. An immovable peace. How? His name is Jesus. See, Stephen had such an intimate relationship with Jesus that nothing could shake him. Let me, let me encourage you this morning. No amount of self-help, no amount of like Enneagram or personality tests, no amount of any form of self-improvement can give you transcendent peace in the face of difficulty or pain. Only the person and presence of Jesus can do that. So whatever it is you're facing in your life right now, whatever it is you got going on, let me promise you, nothing can transcend it other than the person of Jesus. And he wants to walk this life out with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to know his heart, know his ways. So if you'd like to stand this morning. Now I want to pray for two groups of people. The first group of people, maybe you have never made the decision to follow Jesus before. And you think, who is this guy? Who is... Who is this guy, Jesus, that you say is peace? How, how do I know I can trust him? Well, 2,000 years ago, God stepped into human history, embodied in the man Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, and he lived, and he endured the human experience so that he could relate and empathize. And he died on a cross to take on our sin and our brokenness and our shame and our guilt. And three days later, he rose again from a grave to demonstrate, to be, to silence fear and death and to give us what? The hope of a future. To give us what? Peace in the midst of chaos. You've been listening to a weekly message from Light Church. If you would like any more information, you can find us online or on social media. Thanks for listening.